Whereas if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, taking a break from uh, looking at the book of Acts and uh, looking at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the eternal Word of our God, brothers and sisters. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you help us to abide in your word so that we may truly be your disciples, so that we may know the truth and that the truth would set us free. Oh Lord, help us to see your goodness, your grace this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes is a 12-chapter book. You can read it in one sitting, or you can read it in parts. But if you read it in parts, you have to know how it ends. You have to see the whole thing to appreciate the parts of it. Otherwise, if you read just an individual part without knowing the whole, it can seem a little bit depressing. And in fact, many parts of the book are initially depressing. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you know Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. If you've read the book or if you've seen one of the many movies, uh, if you see a part of the movie, uh, it's really difficult. It's a, it's a little bit of a bummer to go through it. Scrooge is this hard, callous, angry man closed off from the world. Uh, and throughout, throughout the movie, you find out, and throughout the book, you find out what got him here. Uh, he's shown by these different spirits, uh, both the things that led him uh, to, to make these, these decisions to be such a callous, closed-off man, and you also see the effect that his uh, callousness has had on others. Uh, but by the time you get to the end, you find a repentant man, someone who's joyful, someone who goes out to make amends for what he's done. And, and then, as you, if you're able to step back and you see the story as a whole, you see that it's a, a very redemptive story. And, and even those hard, uh, sad parts in the story are, in, are instead uh, portions looking at human nature 
and, and teaching you a little bit something about this man that you know that the end is going to be good. We're going to a good place. Well, reading Ecclesiastes can be something like that. Often maybe it's like the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come who's pointing at the gravestone. You think, oh, is that what this whole movie is going to be like? Well, no. There's, a sun, there's sunshine at the end. This book, Ecclesiastes, wants to show us that life is short and that it's often difficult. And so it's a sobering book. But it is also all about the Lord. Life is about the Lord. The message of this book is know the Lord. Obey Him. Enjoy God's gifts that He has so graciously given to us. The tone of Ecclesiastes often is negative and forceful, but that's because it's a long-sustained argument that's trying to show us the foolishness of trusting in anything else other than the Lord. And so if you're going to read any portion of Ecclesiastes, you have to read it with Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, the very last two verses of the book in mind. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so these are the three things we're going to see in our passage this morning. First, we're going to see a very hopeful vapor, and I'll explain that. Then we're going to see meaning in monotony, and then finally, armor against idolatry. Well, look with me at verses 1 through 3 as we see a very hopeful vapor. Uh, The author of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher. The Hebrew word means a convener, someone who gathers people together so that he can address them. So this is someone with something to say. The, The preacher is also the son of David king in Jerusalem. And so the the only person this could really be is Solomon, David's son, the third king of Israel, who is the last king of the united Israel uh, before it splits into a northern and southern kingdom. Uh, Solomon describes a life in the book of Ecclesiastes that really only he could have lived. Uh, He he speaks about his wisdom. Uh, This is a man who had everything. He had wisdom to search out all that is done under heaven. Ecclesiastes verse 13 says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Remember who Solomon is, and at the beginning of his reign, uh, the the Lord approached him at Gideon and said, "Uh, Ask of me uh, what I will give you. And what did Solomon ask? He was blessed for asking for not long life, not riches, but for wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12 says, Behold, the Lord says to Solomon, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like shall arise after you. So Solomon surpassed everyone in wisdom. 1 Kings 10, a little bit later, says the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Uh, Everyone wanted a little bit of time with Solomon so that they could learn from what he knows. So Solomon's a man of wisdom. He's also a man of wealth. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God says that he will give Solomon both riches and honor 
so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Uh, when the queen of Sheba, this is in 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, she says, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. So Solomon is a man with wisdom. He is a man with wealth. And you see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, someone who is surveying what life with so much wisdom and so much wealth looks like. But Solomon also had wives. He started with one, as he should have, and he, and he praises their love in Song of Solomon. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful book of Scripture, but then he sinned against God and became like, he, he acted like other kings and the pagan nations around him, and he added wives to himself, an obscene number. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, what does this mean? Well, every earthly thing that people want Good or bad, Solomon had, and he had more of it than anyone could imagine. And, and so if someone wants to, someone comes to the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's someone who wants to spend their life making money, Solomon had more of it. If someone wants to spend their life gaining power, Solomon had more of it. If someone wants to spend their life chasing physical pleasure, Solomon had more of it. Now, if someone thinks, well, if I had that, I would have done a better job managing it. I would have been smarter with it. No, Solomon got wisdom from God. You will find out, if you have any of these things, exactly what Solomon found out. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Solomon says, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Now, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's research. This is what life looks like if you get everything you want. This is, what, this is how you'll feel. This is how you, you'll think. This is what you'll realize. And what is his summation? It's vanity. It's futile. All of it uh, is, uh, is vanity without the Lord. Now, you've heard people say maybe, and maybe you've said this yourself at one point in time, I just need to go out and find myself. I, I'm not sure that Jesus is the answer. I, I need to try some things. I need to figure out what life is all about. Well, Solomon tried everything for you. He touched the stove and he got burned and he's here to tell you that fire is hot. So Solomon has given us in Ecclesiastes, and the Lord through him has given us uh, this wonderful description of what happens if you uh, pursue all the things of earth without the Lord. Benjamin Shaw said that this book is like an evangelistic tract. Solomon says, whatever earthly treasure you want, I've had it, and you're not going to like it. At least you're not going to find meaning in it. Now, with all of that, Solomon is hopeful. And why is Solomon hopeful? Well, because he knows what doesn't fade. He knows what is meaningful. Solomon knows the Lord of glory. Again, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty 
of man. Now, maybe someone hears that and they think, well, fearing the Lord doesn't immediately sound hopeful or joyful. But the Bible has no problem putting those two things together. Psalm 2 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Uh, Psalm 147, uh, excuse me, uh, Proverbs 14, 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You find in fearing the Lord, actually, not terror, but a fountain of life for your soul. And so this is the, this is the message. Love God and everything else, work, money, and marriage, all of those things fall into place. Solomon's uh, message in Ecclesiastes is not love God and then everything else in the world is meaningless. No, his point actually is that those things uh, just aren't the, the sort of thing that you can build your entire life on. The Lord is the only one uh, who can sustain you. But if you follow him, then all of these other things will be put into place. Solomon says in verse 2, all is vanity. This famous line from Ecclesiastes, maybe the most famous, uh, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, five times in that verse. The the Hebrew word here, and you may have a note in your Bible that tells you this, the Hebrew word uh, is, is maybe best translated breath or vapor. This is the way Benjamin Shaw translates this as most vaporous is our life, but nobody talks that way. So that's, that's why it's not translated that, that way, but that's much closer to the idea here in Ecclesiastes that the, the things of this life and even our lives themselves are something that are here and then gone. Something without, yes, with substance, but with not enough for you to really hold on to. It's something that blows away. Uh, it's not that work or family or even our lives are worthless or meaningless. It's the wrong impression of, of Ecclesiastes. It's that they can't be God to you. They can't give you ultimate meaning. They can't make your life worthwhile. The things of earth can't sustain you and they won't save you. But Solomon knows the Lord. And that's who he wants us to know in Ecclesiastes. Solomon knows that the Lord is glorious. We should think about this word glory for a minute. The Hebrew word we translate glory means weight. It means substance. It means the opposite of vanity and of vapor. Uh, That the Lord is glorious means that He is of utmost significance. God's glory, that's often describing His brightness, His presence, the power of God, but What we're saying is that he's great, that he's weighty, that he's solid, that that he stays unchanging while all other things blow away. The, The Lord is steadfast. Now, Solomon knew this Lord of glory. Uh, he says uh, he, he saw God's glory in first Kings chapter eight, when the building of the temple was complete. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. God 
is glorious. Solomon knows this King of glory. Solomon is saying he is God and there is none like him and there is no other. Solomon, in a sense, is saying, why would you spend your life for anyone else or anything else? Take it from me. I saw his glory. I mean, it's if Solomon is telling us in Ecclesiastes that he got distracted by pale reflections, by vapor, by mirages in the desert. And Solomon's saying you can starve yourself out there chasing after those things, but instead, come to the Lord. He's being evangelistic in this book, you see, shaking non-believers out of idolatry, out of worldliness. But Ecclesiastes is also very practical for the Christian. Ecclesiastes not only meant to show the non-believer the foolishness of chasing anything other than the Lord, it also, it also shows us as believers the joy of life with the Lord. The Lord teaches us how to steward this life that is such a vapor. We don't hold on to anything too tightly. But we love the gifts that God has given us. And, and I'll show you that in the next section. But we love Him above all. What is Solomon saying? We have short lives, but we have a steadfast Lord. Everything under the sun is a vapor. And if you obsess over holding on to every earthly thing, then you won't catch it. But in Christ, we can find forgiveness of sin. We find new life in Him. And He teaches us to walk with Him, to glorify and to enjoy Him. Uh, and so, uh, and, and so this is why Solomon... Uh, is a very hopeful vapor. He realizes that he's not here for long, but he has hope in the Lord, that the Lord sustains him, that the Lord teaches him uh, that things, uh, that the things of earth do matter, that he can steward them as gifts from the Lord, and that one day the Lord will take him to be forever with him. Well, second, we come to meaning in monotony, and this is where I think you see a lot of this very clearly. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. We see several things, Solomon describes them for us, that are monotonous. They're repetitive, almost tiring. Uh, they start and they finish and then they seem to restart all over again. And, and he's saying that it can be wearying to think about all this. So in verse 4, he says the generations are monotonous. Uh, one generation goes and then the next comes and it seems to go over and over again throughout the earth. In verse 5, another thing that is monotonous is the sun hastening on its journey, running its course through the sky from our perspective. And it's, it's kind of like this. You think about the, the fact that the day starts, the day ends. You get in bed, you set your alarm clock, uh, you jump up again the next morning, uh, one day a year. This morning you get a little bit extra time. But then there's something of a weariness to this. Uh, well, in verse 6, uh, the wind blows around the world. In verse 7, the streams run into the sea, and the sea is never full. He's talking about the water cycle here. And so generations, the sun, wind, streams, they all go on and on. And you might say, okay, wh where's the joy in this passage? Uh, you, you see the monotony, hopefully, but where's the meaning in this? Uh, it, it may seem at first like all Solomon is doing is lamenting. But remember, this is the beginning of an argument that he's going to continue through this book. There's a hint of the bigger purpose in verse 4. It says, a generation comes and goes, but the earth remains. Well, who is it that sustains the earth? 
Who is it that keeps these systems and cycles going? Who is the constant when everything else changes? What's the Lord? And, and he keeps things going until one day when, he will when Christ will return and he will destroy the earth with fire. But even then, he will make all things new. And we who are in Christ will live eternally in his presence on the remade, renewed earth in glorified bodies, unable to sin then. Ecclesiastes would have us despair of trying to find life apart from Christ and then pointing us to what is beyond us, the Lord. In Christ, all these things become meaningful in their proper place. Where to, as, as Jesus will say in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But you don't have to wait till the New Testament to get this kind of news. Look, later in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon commends joy to us. In fact, those are his exact words in Ecclesiastes 8.15. I commend joy. He says, eat, drink, and be joyful. And there he's not commending gluttony or drunkenness or, or self-indulgence. He's celebrating the simple joys God has given people in creation. God didn't have to make food delicious, but he did. And so stepping back and enjoying that is recognizing that God has given gifts to his people. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 19 and 20, Solomon says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. These things are not intrinsically bad in and of themselves. In our sin, we twist them. But when God provides for us, we are to recognize that they are gifts from him. We praise God when we look at the gift, we acknowledge how good it is, and, and we go to the giver. Uh, we rejoice in him for what he has given. Now that, that word there uh, in Ecclesiastes 5.20, that we're to rejoice in our toil, in our work, that may sound to you like a pretty negative way of describing work, but it's the reality of work after the fall. As Genesis 3 tells us, that God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is good. It was given to man before the fall. But now our work is cursed with futility and frustration and Difficulty And Ecclesiastes draws this out really well. Some have said that Ecclesiastes is in some ways a commentary on the first uh, several chapters of Genesis. Your work, your daily vocation, whatever it is, uh, whether you go out to work, whether you work from home, uh, whether you do what may seem to the world like mundane things, uh, when you do these things, it may seem monotonous, like the same thing every day, the the alarm is going off again. The kids are hungry again. These kinds of things may seem like they, they come and go in waves, uh, but there is a blessing to them. Your work, Ecclesiastes is saying, isn't only toil. We can have joy in the toil. You can find joy in your work, meaning in it, if nothing else, than because you work for Christ. Colossians 3, 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, 
and not for men. Well, Solomon commends joy in our work. He also commends joy in marriage. And I think this is important to bring out. There's something of a monotony to marriage. You see the same person over and over again. But Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Two points there, life is to be enjoyed and with your spouse. But remember, I think this is so significant that it's Solomon saying this. He who had multiple wives and was not satisfied, he spoiled the relationship that he, that he praised and rejoiced in so well in Song of Solomon, spoiled that relationship, but he warns you, enjoy what God has given, cultivate and nurture what God has given. Enjoyment doesn't just happen. Enjoyment in marriage and in work comes from Christ. Coming to the Lord in repentance and in faith. Sin makes us selfish and foolish and unable to get over the things that are under the sun. As Christians, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love and to chase after some other thing. But we come to Christ. We have come to Christ. His yoke is easy. His burden is life. It is light, and he gives rest to weary souls. Solomon's message is that a life without the Lord is futile, but that with the Lord, all his good gifts can be truly enjoyed as praise to him. But how do we enjoy God's good gifts without becoming obsessed with them? Well, that brings us to our final point here in verses in verses 8 through 11 where we find an armor against idolatry. Verse 8 starts with a summary statement. Solomon's about to show us a weariness. And the statement is a statement for our age. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. How much time do people spend staring at a screen and just scrolling through content and not ever really being satisfied. You have to make yourself stop. Uh, We're longing to see some kind of new image, hear some new thing, or find some new product that we'll want to buy. And it's like the sea from verse 7, that our eyes are never full of all that we want to see if we're looking only for something under the sun. And in the same way, the ear is never full of hearing, Uh, This is like those men in Athens that Luke describes in Acts chapter 17, verse 21. Uh, These men who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, Some people are happy to hear a new idea. They may even tolerate listening to what you think about God. But as soon as they hear you have to repent and believe, they're done. Uh, in, in, In our sin, people want to hear but not change. They want to see, but they don't want to look to Jesus who saves. And it's always been like this, Solomon shows us. Verse 9 gives us that famous line, there's nothing new under the sun. And verse 10 continues, see, there's a thing of which it's said, see, this is new, but it's already been in the ages before us. So this is not claiming that there's never been creativity or innovation, but we are all working with materials. God is the one who spoke all things into being. 
God created out of nothing. Our creativity, even when it's amazing, and there are things that are truly amazing, like medicine or smartphones, but they're all secondhand. God is the creator. God is the one who spoke things from nothing. Solomon is also saying that human nature hasn't changed either. There may be something new to buy, but those things that we could obtain, they do the same kind of things to our hearts. We're tempted to obsess over something until we get it, and then what happens? We lose interest, or we begin to take it for granted. Verse 11 uh, here in the text says that there's no remembrance of things past And that won't change. See, we fail to learn the lessons from what came before. Despite all our advancement culturally, we remain the same kind of ignorant, forgetful people. If you're in Christ, you can give God glory for life-saving medical advancement and for digital technology that makes your life easier. But without Christ, all these things are just towers of Babel of varying sizes. The people patting themselves on the back saying, we've done it this time. No one's ever done something this great, which technically speaking may be true for some new advancement. And it will be true until the next person says the exact same thing. And they forget the person who went before them. And so for those who obsess over fame, over the legacy they will leave, Solomon is saying that too is a vapor that fades away. And so these thoughts are armor against idolatry first. Uh, our first armor against idolatry is that things aren't that great. Whatever is the latest, greatest trend or invention is going to be taken for granted sooner than we think. And then the second armor against idolatry here is that these things are gifts. They are presents from the Lord. And if we receive them that way, it helps us not to obsess over them because we look up from them to the Lord. Ecclesiastes 3, 13, Solomon calls eating and drinking and taking pleasure in work God's gift to man. In Ecclesiastes 5, 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Did you hear, there's something really interesting in that verse at the very beginning of it. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions. So these things come from God, wealth and, and, and possessions. But then he also says, and the power to enjoy them. It's a profound thing to think about, that God can give you everything that you want and yet withhold from you the power to enjoy those things. We can obsess, we can run after a gift, work hard for it, dream about it, beg for it, obsess over it, hold on to the gift as tightly as we want. And God may not give that person the power to enjoy it. And that is a blessing to that person if they are obsessed with it. It's snatching the ring of power, their precious, out of their hand and saying that there's something better. This obsession could kill you. It's something, uh, being obsessed over the things of the world It's a terrible thing. But on the other hand, if we are in Christ, we can have little and rejoice in it because God gives us enjoyment. Uh, God gives us the blessing of being uh, able to enjoy the little, the simple things of life uh, and to glorify him for them. May he do so for us. 
A third and finally, a last armor, a piece of armor against idolatry is the question, what do we really need? And, and I'll conclude here, what do we most fundamentally need uh, in, in our lives? Uh, what, what would people in the world say is the answer to that question? What do we fundamentally need? Do we need to figure out how to live a few years longer? Or do we need to invent some object or we need to buy some object that will truly give us joy? Well, when people think that way, they're really looking for just some kind of anesthesia uh, to forget uh, the difficulties of life and waiting until the end. But what we really need is forgiveness of sin. Misery doesn't come ultimately from how short life is. Misery comes from the fact that we've offended a holy God, that we've sinned against him, and that after death, it's the last line of Ecclesiastes, comes judgment. But Jesus, the king, the king of Salem, the king of peace, the one who is the son of David, he asks the question in uh, Mark uh, eight thirty six: what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We don't need the things of the world. We need the steadfast love of the Lord. Everything changes, but He remains the same. He alone is the solid rock and all other ground is sinking sand. And we will only stand in the judgment if we are in Christ. And if we are in Him, then we have true freedom from the penalty of sin. And now we can have freedom from the power of sin. We can fight against the allure of the world and learn to rejoice in the good gifts God has given. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. The African church father Augustine prayed, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Well, it's natural to hear that life is short and then to get a little down. But Ecclesiastes has a long way of getting us to the point that Paul makes very briefly, very simply in Philippians 1, 23. To depart and be with Christ, that is far better. Brothers and sisters, drive those words into your heart and mind. Preach them to yourself. Anytime you are fearful or anxious or weighed down, say to yourself, say to others, to depart and to be with Christ that is far better. Because of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, our final hope is not in the things of the world, either the possessions or the accomplishments or the pleasures that we might enjoy. Our final and great hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he, in a profound and wonderful way, will teach us how to enjoy the things, the blessings that he has given us in this world. But ironically, he does so by teaching us to loosen our grip on those things and seeing that they are ultimately gifts from him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, truly, what does it profit us to gain the whole world if we forfeit our souls? As James says, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is our life? For we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, we ought to say, Lord, if you will, then we will do this or that. Lord, we look to that day when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when what is fleeting and passing away puts on what is solid and firm forever. Lord, when the mortal puts, away, puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Lord, help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Lord, we thank you uh, that you give meaning to our lives, that you, through Christ, uh, give solidness and substance to our lives. Lord, help us see it. Help us to be encouraged by it. And Father, since we have been raised with Christ, help us to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Oh Lord, help us as we continue to worship you this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.